Well, good morning, everyone. It was a hot August afternoon at Fenway Park. The Red Sox were playing the Yankees. The bases were loaded in the bottom of the ninth with the score four to five in favor of the evil empire. No one was leaving the stands. Everyone was holding their breath as the pitcher delivered a solid fastball right down the middle of the strike zone. Strike, cried the umpire. It was now a full count with two outs, two outs, and the next pitch would likely decide the game. Stepping out, adjusting his gloves, and then back into the batter's box, the batter took a deep breath and prepared himself for the next pitch. Sweat ran down the pitcher's face as he drew back his arm and threw another pitch. This time, though, the batter connected and sent the ball flying through the air with a fantastic line drive that bounced off the green monster. The runner on third easily scored, but they needed the man on second base to also score to win the game. The runner from second came screaming around third base, and just as the outfielder threw the ball as hard as he could, and the ball got to the catcher, and as he turned to tag him, the runner ran into the catcher in a violent collision. And immediately one team jumped up and said, he's safe, he's safe, he's safe. And the other team jumped up and said, he's out, he's out, he's out. The umpire calmly raised his hand and said, he ain't nothing till I say he is. We often talk and ask, or we often ask the opinion of other people we trust or love. We often get the opinion of people we'd probably rather not get an opinion from. Opinions are everywhere, and everyone has one. If you ask a thousand different people for their opinion, you'll probably get a thousand different answers. But I want to tell you this morning, when it comes to the bigger questions of life, there is only one opinion that really matters. God's. He is the umpire of the universe. I know Sanctity of Human Life Sunday was last week, but I decided I wanted to preach on the subject this morning. And when it comes to these questions of life, what should we be at what should we should be asking is how does God feel about the sanctity of life? Period. Notice I didn't say how do you feel? How do I feel about it? How does God feel about life? You know, there's not one verse in the Bible that speaks of God having to answer to man. But there are plenty of verses that say man needs to answer to God. And so the issue is not how you and I feel about the sanctity of life, but how God feels about it. It's not how you and I call it but how the umpire of the universe calls it. You know, mankind will justify pretty much anything in his sin. And we all have different opinions, but on the big things, again, God's is the only one that truly counts. Now, there are things in the Bible we don't understand. How many of you would admit that? There are things in the Bible I just don't understand. There's probably a lot of things in the Bible we only think we understand. 
But let me tell you, there are some things in the Bible that we cannot misunderstand. One of the things we cannot misunderstand is how God feels about the sanctity of human life. And so we find six things in the Bible, at least six things, that are impossible to misunderstand regarding God's opinion on life. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 for a moment. So the first thing that we find, the sanctity of life was instituted by God because humans reflect the glory of God. Genesis 1, verses 27 through 28. They read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You know, there's some that feel that the reason God created man was because he was somehow disappointed in the monkey. Not true. The Bible declares that's not true. Hi, Alea. How are you this morning? The reason God created man, we find in the scriptures, was to reflect his glory. We are meant to be a living image of him, created in his likeness. We are to reflect his majesty on the earth. What was it God said? He said you're to have dominion. You're to be the head of the earth. You are to lead the way. You're to have authority on the earth. You are to reflect my image on the earth because you were created in my image. But look around us. All creation gives glory to God, does it not? I don't know. I've never been there, but I've seen pictures. Think of the great redwood trees in California. They're majestic. Some are so large that a truck can drive through the trunk of it if a hole was cut through. I've read about the antelope of Colorado, whose eyes are equivalent to seven power binoculars. And I read somewhere the other day they can run like 70 miles an hour for a short time. Some incredible thing like that. How many of you have ever been fishing someplace where they've got fish as big as the boat that you're in? It's incredible. The sun, the moon, the stars to this day, they capture the imagination of those that look at them and study them and they're incredible in their wonder and the scripture says they declare the glory of God. But all these, although all these give glory to God, they were not created in his image. Only man was. Now let me ask you this. If you created something unique, something to reflect who you are, would it not hold a special place in your heart? Would it not occupy a special order in your world? So it is with mankind. God created us with special purpose, and not just special purpose, but a purpose that is dear to God. How would you feel if someone came along and destroyed that special thing that you created to reflect who you are to the universe? Second thing explains when God started to develop that image, and it's sooner than many believe. The second thing we find in the scripture is that God starts at conception to develop a life. If you would, turn with me to Psalms 139. 
Psalms 139 starts in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that you were formed for me, that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David affirms that life begins, his life extended, uh, the work of God and his life extended back to when he was in his mother's womb. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. That explains the work of God in creating the person in the mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. means I'm an awesome wonder. No, a life created by God. Think about what is being said by David here. My unformed substance. How back, how far back does God view life when he was yet still just unformed in his mother's womb? God knew him as a life. Even before the hands and feet form, before the heartbeat starts, before the eyes open and ears hear, when David was just a few cells growing inside of his mother, still unformed into a recognizable human form, God's, are, God's eyes already saw him. Not a clump of cells, but him, David, a living soul, a person, the king of Israel. In your book has the idea that the life of the person, the structure, the meaning, the calling of the person's life was all established from the beginning by God. And it was done in the moments of conception. And so God's view of life starts at conception or even perhaps before. Jeremiah 1 verses 4 and 5 reads, Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I already knew you. You were already a person, a life. In this, who did God know? Jeremiah. Before he took shape as a human being, before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah was keenly aware of God's call on his life that had been destined by God before conception. He quoted God as saying, before again, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, knew him, means God called him to perform a critical mission at a critical point in history, in the history of the nation of Israel. Again, Jeremiah was to be a prophet to the nation of Judah and a messenger of God to all nations. And so the fact is, God starts even before conception to develop a life. I read a story the other day of a boy sitting on his father's lap. And they were looking into a mirror. And the boy said to his dad, he said, Dad, who made me? The father said, God made you, son. The boy said, Dad, who made you? The father said again, God made me, son. The boy said once more, Dad, who made granddad? He said, God made him, son. The boy continued, Dad, who made great-granddad? Father once again said, God made him, son. The boy's father got curious and he said, why do you ask, son? 
boy took one look back at the mirror and said, well, just seems to me he's doing a better job in recent days. <laughs> Third statement explains even more than what is in the womb is from him. So much it expresses God's feelings about children born with special needs. You know, we hear the argument so much in the world today when it comes to abortion. Well, there's something wrong with the child. We shouldn't bring it into this world. Well, let me tell you, even when people are not perfect, God acknowledges the fact that the one in the womb belongs to him. Psalms 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. The word heritage means inheritance in the Hebrew. It's something of great value that is given. Children are God's gift to us. In the days of the Old Testament, children were a symbol of strength, just as an arrow was. They were a symbol of blessing from God. But understand that even if people are not perfect, God acknowledges the fact that the one in the womb belongs to him. In Exodus 4, we find that Moses is intimidated by what God has called him to do to be used of God to deliver the children of Israel from Pharaoh in Egypt. In verse 10, Moses uses the argument, but God, I've got something wrong with me. I can't be used by you. It says, And Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. He says, God, you're asking me to go and stand before Pharaoh and say all these things, and I can't even talk right, God. How, like, I'm not your man, God. There's something wrong with me. How can you use me? Because of my disability, how in the world am I going to speak for you? Listen to God's answer in verse 11. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? God reminded Moses that it was he who made Moses' mouth, stuttering and all. It reminds me of David Ring. How many of you have ever heard David Ring yeah. preach? David Ring has CP and he was told, no one will ever want to hear you preach. Since he began his ministry, he has preached in thousands of churches all across the world, and millions upon millions of people have heard him share his testimony and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, the Lord has fashioned everyone. He promised to instruct Moses of what to say when he went to see Pharaoh. God established our capabilities from the beginning, and even those who are physically or mentally imperfect come from him. He told Moses, I made the mute, the deaf, the dumb, the seeing, and the blind. Even when people are not perfect, God acknowledges the fact that the one in the womb belongs to him. And their life has meaning. 
Now, it's not his desire. It wasn't his original plan for someone to be born, born mute, deaf, or impaired in any way. That's the result of being part of a fallen world. Remember, God created the world and man to be perfect. We're born imperfect because of man's sin. Not a single person is born without physical flaw, and that's why from the time we're born, we are always moving toward death because of sin. But when a child is born deaf, to God be the glory. When a child is born mute, to God be the glory. When a child is born lame, to God be the glory. When a child is born with a heart problem, to God be the glory. That child is still from him. And the fourth point explains how severely God feels about the one he created in the womb. He is not just concerned about when life starts, but when it stops. And so what God decides to start, he does not give us the liberty to decide when it ends. In Genesis 1.27, we're told, we read it early, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Exodus 20.13, we're told, you shall not murder. God says, you do not have the authority to end the life that I began. In Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25, we read, If men fight and hurt a woman with child, so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. And he shall pay as the judge determines. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, womb for womb, stripe for stripe. God said in this passage, he said, if someone killed an unborn child, it was life for life under the law of Moses. And so God clearly says, you cannot end a life that I start. Now, please understand that self-defense, times of war, capital punishment are different subjects. God deals with those in Scripture and gives limited authority under those special circumstances to end a life. But the basic command that we find in Scripture is that God says, you cannot end a life that I start. There have been nearly a million abortions in the U.S. every year. We go back even further, there was as much as one and a half million uh, lives ended through abortion in the U.S. each year. When women were asked why they had an abortion, they say they didn't want to be a single parent or have problems in current relationships. It wasn't time. They say they couldn't afford the child. They say it would interfere with their lives, and for many, for reasons of simply convenience. One survey conducted in the overturning of Roe v. Wade found that 62% of Americans said abortion should be legal in almost every circumstance. 36% said it should never be legal. Another survey showed that relatively few Americans take an absolutist view on the issue. But whose opinion really matters? God's. I want to make something very clear. 
If you have ever had an abortion, please understand that with God there is forgiveness. With God, sin is sin. The way someone abhors abortion is the way God feels about all of our sin. He is a holy, holy, holy God. And he hates sins. One person has lustful thoughts. Another has a bitter tongue. Others are adulterers and liars, thieves and abusers, gossipers and idol worshipers. We all have things in our lives that are dishonoring to God. But Jesus died so that all sin could be forgiven. And yours can too, no matter what sins you have committed. Amen? If you've had an abortion, I'm not here to beat you up verbally. I'm not as... Some people in the world suggest I'm, I'm not interested in controlling what women do with their bodies. What I'm concerned about is the body that's inside your body. I do need to let everyone know, though, what God says about life. And there, we're not supposed to end life. He places in the womb. But if you've done it, I want you to know that God loves you and wants to see you forgiven. And so ask for forgiveness, turn to him and receive forgiveness, whatever your sin is. And you might ask, but if this is such a terrible sin, how could I ever forgive myself? Please bear in mind that if it's not on his mind, it does not have to be on your mind. I've heard it said that God is a God of the future, not the past. He has a full-time business, and it's called forgiveness. Once he tosses your sin as far as the east is from the west, you can toss them from your thoughts as well and know that you have truly been forgiven. You can find forgiveness in him and be healed of the past, forgiven of whatever you have done. But again, God wants us to know what he starts we do not have the right to stop. And the fifth statement we find explains what God sees in the person that he creates. He loves what he sees in the womb, although the infant is sinful from the day it is conceived. Psalms 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David recognizes that as an unborn child, he stood before God a sinner because he reflected the sinful nature of Adam, the first person God ever created. He relates his sinfulness to the inception of life. Psalms 58.3 tells us, The wicked are ensnared from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. I hate to tell you, but that's you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. Every one of us is a sinner. Frankly, we don't like to see ourselves that way. Will, Will Rogers once made the comment, I love to hear a man talk about himself. I hear nothing but good. <laughs> but the reality is, from the moment we're born, we start sinning. We might ask the question, who taught you to sin? And the reality is, no one. 
We come by it naturally. We're sinners from the start. Ever catch a toddler with its hand in the cookie jar? What does it do? I wasn't doing nothing. When I catch Alea doing something wrong and something that she's not supposed to be in, she knows. She will look me right in the eye and say, Stop it! Dad, leave me alone. We're sinful from the start. That's why we all need a Savior and desperately need a Savior. No one has to teach us to be sinful. We figure it out real quick on our own. And the terrible news is the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but an eternity in hell. And although the bad news is really bad, the good news is really good. Because there's a sixth thing God wants to say about the sanctity of life. And it tells you just how much God loves life. God so loves life, he wants everyone on earth to live with him for eternity. God not only loves us coming into the world, but he wants us to be in his world forever. That is why one of the most, uh, most well-known verses in the Bible, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We're sinners from the day that we're born, yet God loves us. Because we are sinners, we deserve to die. But Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, came into the world and he took your sin and he took my sin upon himself and he died in our place so that the price of sin would be paid and we could live. He was our substitute. How much does God love life? How much does God love your life, my life? He died so that we could live. Your sin, my sin, cost God his life, and he willingly suffered and died so that we can live. John 6, verse 47 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And so God is asking us to come to him as sinners, recognize that Yeshua, Jesus, died for us, rose again, and we must put our trust, our faith in Christ alone as our only way to eternal life. How many of you understand you can't trust in church attendance? You can't trust in how much you put in the offering box. You can't even trust in the number of good works that you do. There is only one thing that you can trust in to receive eternal life. And that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. So God gives us eternal life as a gift. Not quite the free one we normally think of. It's a free gift to us. But he paid the ultimate price to purchase us from our sin and an eternity of torment. And so as we close, here are the six things that we find in Scripture that teaches us about the sanctity of human life. One, once again, the sanctity of life was instituted by God because humans reflect the glory of God created in His image. Two, 
God says life starts at conception and maybe even before. Number three, even when people are not perfect, God acknowledges the fact that the one in the womb belongs to him. Number four, when God decides to start, he doesn't give us the liberty to decide when to end. Number five, he loves what he sees in the womb, although the infant is sinful from the day it's conceived. And six, God loves you and wants you to live so much that he died for you. If you want to know how God feels about the sanctity of life, look at three things. Conception, the cradle, and the cross. At conception, God formed a unique life who, already knows, who he already knows and loves and he has a unique plan for. At the cradle, God makes it possible for life to be seen, but at the cross, he made it possible for life to be saved. God is the umpire of the universe. A life is a life when he says it is, and he says that the one in the womb is a unique living soul. He alone has the authority to say when a life may be ended. May we recognize his authority on this matter and live accordingly. May we love and protect and seek to save all whom God has granted life to. Amen. Would you stand as we close this morning? Worship team, come on back.